0: John, chapter 19, verses 17 through 42, verse 17 and 18. And they took Jesus and led him away, and he, bearing his cross, went forth into the place called the Place of the Skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, on either side, one, and Jesus in the midst. Burkett Notes Observe here, one that it was a custom among the Romans to cause the person condemned to crucifying to carry his own cross. Accordingly, our Savior bare his own cross part of the way, till fainting under the burden of it, they laid it upon another, not out of mercy, but malice, reserving for him a more public death. They were loath that he should go away in a fainting fit. But why could not Christ bear his own cross, who was able to bear the sins of the whole world when hanging upon the cross? Answer one. Probably the Jews' malice provided him a cross of an extraordinary greatness, proportionable to the crimes they charged him with. Two, he was much debilitated and weakened with his long watching and sweating the night before. Three, the sharp edges of the cross, grating his late whipped and galled shoulders, might occasion the fresh bleeding of his wounds, and his weakening thereby. Four, hereby he gave the world a demonstration of the truth of his humanity, that he was in all things like unto us, with respect to his human nature and the common infirmities of that nature. Herein, like Isaac, Christ cheerfully carried the wood on which he was to be offered up, a sacrifice to divine justice. Observe, too, the infamous company which our holy Lord suffered with, two thieves, on either side one, and himself in the midst. It had been a sufficient disparagement to our blessed Redeemer, To be sorted with the best of men, but to be numbered with the scum of mankind is such an indignity as confounds our thoughts. This was designed by the Jews to dishonor and disgrace our Savior the more, and to persuade the world that he was the greatest of offenders. But God overruled this for fulfilling an ancient prophecy concerning the Messiah, Isaiah 53, Ultimate, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Verses 19 through 22. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priest of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Burkett notes, observe here, one, the inscription wrote by Pilate over our suffering Savior. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. It was the manner of the Romans, when they crucified a malefactor, to publish the cause of his death in capital letters over his head. That so the equity of their proceedings might more clearly appear to the people. Now it's observable how wonderfully the wisdom of God overruled the heart and pen of Pilate to draw this title. Which was truly honorable, and fix it to his cross. Pilate, who before was his judge and pronounced him innocent, is now his herald to proclaim his glory. Learn hence that the regal dignity of Christ was openly proclaimed by an enemy, and that in the time of his greatest reproaches and sufferings. Pilate, without his own knowledge, did our Savior an eminent piece of service. He did that for Christ which none of his own disciples durst do, not designedly. But from the special overriding providence of God. No thanks to Pilate for all this, because the highest service performed to Christ undesignedly shall neither be accepted nor rewarded by God. Observe, too, how the Jews endeavor to alter this write not the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am King of the Jews. The Jews thought it would be a disgrace to them that Christ should be reported abroad to have been their King therefore they desired an alteration of the writing. But Pilate, that wrote in honor of Christ, stiffly defends what he had done. To all their importunity he returns this resolute answer, What I have written, I have written. Surely the constancy of Pilate at this time must be attributed to special divine providence. How wonderful was it that he who before was as inconstant as a reed should now be fixed as a pillar of brass. Whence is this but from the God of spirits, moving upon his spirit to write and defend what was written. The providence of God hath a prospect beyond the understanding of all creatures. Verses 23 and 24 Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier a part, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They parted my raiments among them, and for my vestiture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Burkett notes, here we have recorded our Savior's sufferings from the soldier. They stripped him of his garments before they fastened him to his cross and divided those garments which could be parted amongst them, and cast lots on a woven coat which could not be divided. Little did these vile soldiers think that they were now fulfilling of scripture prophecy, yet so it was, this action of theirs being foretold, Psalm 22, 18. They part my garments among them, and cast lots upon my vesture. Not that the prophecy made them do it, but was fulfilled by their doing of it. From hence we may gather that Christ suffered naked upon the cross, as naked, say some, as he came into the world. We had made ourselves naked to our shame, and Christ became naked to cover our shame. If, sensible of our own nakedness and shame, we flee unto him by faith, we shall be clothed with robes of righteousness and garments of everlasting praise. Verses 25-27 through 27. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Caiaphas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her into his own home. Burkett notes, these words contain our Savior's affectionate recommendation of his distressed mother to the care of a dear disciple. It was an argument of Christ's wonderful love to her, that when he was nailed to the cross and ready to die, he was more concerned for his mother's sorrow than for his own suffering. Now was Simon's prophecy fulfilled, Luke 2.35, A sword shall pass through thine own soul also. Her soul was pierced for him, both as his natural mother and and also as a mystical member of him, her head. Therefore, Christ applies these comfortable words as a salve to her wounds, even while his own were bleeding unto death. Woman, behold thy son. Where, note, he calls her woman, and not mother. He did not say, mother, behold thy son, but woman, behold him. Not that Christ was ashamed of, or unwilling to own her as his mother, but either one, fearing that calling her by that name should augment and increase her grief and trouble, or else, too, to intimate his change of state and condition, that being ready to die and return to his father in heaven, he was above all earthly relations, and knew no one after the flesh, no, not his very mother. Yet see at the same time, when he was above her and about to leave her, how his care manifested itself for her when his soul and body were full of anguish to the very brim, yet all this makes him not in the least unmindful of so dear a relation. Thence learn that Christ's tender care of his mother, even in the time of his greatest distress, is an excellent pattern for all children to imitate and follow to the end of the world. St. John here obeyed Christ's command and imitated his example. He took her to his own home, that is, He treated her with all that dutiful regard which a tender and indulgent mother challenges from a pious and obedient son. No personal trial or trouble upon ourselves does exempt us from the performance of our duty towards others, especially towards our near and dear relations. Christ, in the extremity of his sufferings, accounted it his duty to take care of and provide for his dear mother, teaching us by his example, the children ought to evidence that they honor their parents by taking care of them in their decay and desolate condition. Again, inasmuch as St. John took care of the Holy Mother after her dear son's death, that disciple took her into his own home, we learn that the Lord never removes one comfort and takes away the means of subsistence from his people, but he raises up another in the room of it. It is very probable that Joseph, her husband, was before this time dead, And Jesus, her son, was now dying, but still God provides. He raises up St. John to take care of her. He takes her to his own home and looks upon her as one of his family. But how comes St. John above the rest to have this honorable service put upon him and this high trust reposed in him? Answer, the text tells us he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. That is, in a more particular manner, treating him with a greater freedom and familiarity than the rest. He also evidenced more love unto and more courage and resolution for Christ than the rest of the disciples, he standing by the cross when they got afar off. Mark 15.50 Thence we learn that such are beloved of Christ, as do keep close unto him and express most zeal and resolution for him, shall be particularly honored by him and be employed in the highest services for him. Verses 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon the hyssop, and put it to his mouth. Burkett notes, observe here, one, the affliction or suffering which our Savior complained of, and that is thirst. There are two sorts of thirst, the one natural and proper, the other spiritual and figurative. Christ felt both at this time. His body thirsted by reason of those agonies which it labored under. His soul thirsted in vehement desires and fervent longings to accomplish that great and difficult work he was now about. 2. The design and end of our Lord's complaint. That the Scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. Our Savior, finding that all was accomplished, which he was to do before his death, but only the fulfilling of that one scripture, Psalm 69, 21, they gave me vinegar to drink. He for the accomplishment thereof said, I thirst. Whence note that such were the agonies and extreme sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross, that they drank up his very spirits and made him cry, I thirst. Two, that when Christ cried out, I thirst, it was to show that whatever was foretold by the prophets concerning him was actually accomplished, and even to a circumstance, fulfilled in him. That the scripture might be fulfilled, Jesus saith, I thirst. Verse 30. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Briquette notes, observe here. 1 our lord's last words it is finished 2 his last act he bowed his head and gave up the ghost as to the former his last words it is finished this might be the probable intendment of it 1 it is finished that is now is my father's eternal counsel concerning me accomplished and now is the promise that he made of my becoming a sacrifice for sin fulfilled both my father's purpose and my father's promise are now receiving their final accomplishment. Two, it is finished. That is, the scriptures are now fulfilled. All the types that did prefigure me, all the prophetical predictions that were made of me, all the Jewish sacrifices that pointed at me, have now received their final accomplishment in me and are abolished in my death. Three, it is finished. That is, my sufferings are now ended, my race is won, my work is done, I am now putting my last hand to it, and my death is before me. I have finished the work, the whole work, which I came into the world for, doing as well as dying. All is upon the matter completed. It's just finishing. It will be instantly finished. Again, for it is finished, that is the fury and malice, the rage and revenge of my enemies, is now ended. They have done their worst. The chief priests and soldiers, the judges and witnesses, the executioners and tormentors have all tired out themselves with the exercise of their own malice. But now their spite and spleen, their envy and enmity is ended, and the Son of God is at rest. Five. It is finished. That is, the glorious work of man's redemption and salvation is perfected and performed, consummated and completed. The price is paid, satisfaction is given, redemption is purchased, and salvation ensured to a miserable world. Woe unto us if Christ had left but one farthing of our debt to the justice of God unpaid. We must have lain in hell to all eternity as being insolvent, but Christ has, by one offering, forever perfected them that are sanctified. Learn hence that Jesus Christ hath perfected and completely finished the great work of redemption committed to him by God the Father. Observe, too, our Savior's last act. He bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Once learn the spontaneity and voluntariness of Christ's suffering. How freely he surrendered to death. His soul was not rent from him, but yielded up to God by him. Christ was a volunteer in dying. Though his death was a violent death, yet it was a voluntary sacrifice. He bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Verses 31 through 37. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for the Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate, that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers, and brake the legs of the first, and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers, with his spear, pierced his side, and forthwith there came out blood and water. And he saw that it bare record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again another scripture saith, they shall look upon him whom they pierced. Burkett Notes these verses contain several remarkable passages tending to the confirmation of our faith in the belief of the certainty and reality of our Savior's death, in which the Jews, the soldiers, and St. John do all give their several and sufficient evidences. Observe one, the Jews part in clearing up his truth. They desire Pilate, who had power alone to dispose of the dead bodies of condemned persons, that the legs of the crucified persons might be broken to hasten their death, so that they might be taken away and buried. Because according to law, Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23, the land was defiled with those that are hanged, if not timely buried. And they judged, if the bodies of these persons did remain on the cross all that night, and the next Sabbath day, which was a high day, the ordinary Sabbath, and the first day of Passover, or feast of unleavened bread, meeting together, it might pollute both them and their feast. Whence note the cursed hypocrisy of these Jews. They look upon themselves as strictly bound to observe an outward ceremony, but their consciences never scruple to violate the most weighty precepts of the moral law. They strictly observe the ceremonial precept that the dead body should not remain upon the cross, but they scruple not to crucify the Son of God and to use him with the utmost rigor, desiring his bones may be broken. Observe, too. The soldiers' part contributed to clear the truth of Christ's death. They executed what the Jews had desired, and Pilate granted, breaking the legs of the two thieves, but not of Jesus, because he was already dead. But one of the soldiers, resolving to make sure work, thrust his spear into his side, and there came out straightway blood and water, proving that he was really dead. All which points out to us that it was he who came by water and blood, first John five six, and that from the merit and efficacy of his death there floweth out blood for the obtaining remission of sin and water to regenerate and wash from us our uncleanness from the barbarous soldiers piercing of Christ's side after he was dead, we learn that no cruelty was omitted to Christ, either dead or alive, which might testify the great desert of our sin, nor was there any needful evidence wanting which might make clear the truth of his death. The soldiers' piercing of our Savior's side was at once an exercise of their cruelty and an evidence of the certainty of Christ's death. Observe 3, St. John's part in this evidence. He avouches that Christ really died and expressly affirms that he saw it with his own eyes for the confirmation of our faith. He that saw it bear a record, and his record is true. And further shows that by these actions of the soldiers, that was done by which several scripture prophecies were fulfilled and received their accomplishment, particularly that of exodus twelve forty six concerning the Paschal Lamb, which was a type of Christ, that a bone of it should not be broken, and that prediction zachariah twelve ten they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. Learn hence that Christ is the truth and substance of that type, the Paschal Lamb mentioned. Exodus 12, and the true Passover sacrificed for us. Therefore, what was ordained concerning the Paschal Lamb is applied here to Christ as the substance of that type. A bone of him shall not be broken. Verses 38 through 42. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate, that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus, and wound it in linen cloth with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulchre, wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulchre was nigh at hand. Burkett notes This last paragraph of the chapter gives us an account of our Lord's honorable burial, such a funeral as never was since graves were first digged. Where observe one. Our Lord's body must be begged before it could be buried, the dead bodies of malefactors being in the power and at the disposal of the judge. Pilate grants it, and accordingly the dead body is taken, dead, wrapped in fine linen, and prepared for the sepulchre. Observe, too, the persons who bestowed this honorable burial upon Christ, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. The one provided fine linen and the other fine spices and they jointly wound and embalmed his body after the Jewish manner, Both of them worthy, though close, disciples. Grace does not always make a public and open show where it is, but as there is much secret treasure unseen in the bowels of the earth, so is there much grace in the hearts of some saints, which the world takes little notice of. We read of none of the apostles at Christ's funeral. Fear put them to flight, but Joseph and Nicodemus appear boldly, If God strengthen the weak, and leave the strong to the prevalency of their own fears, the weak shall be as David, and the strong as Toe. Observe 3. The grave or sepulcher in which our Lord was buried. It was a sepulcher in a garden, to expiate Adam's sin committed in a garden. As by the sin of the first Adam we were driven out of paradise, the garden of pleasure, so by the suffering of a second Adam, who lay buried in a garden, we may hope for entrance into the heavenly paradise. And it was in a new sepulchre, wherein never any man was laid, lest his adversary should say it was another that was risen, who was buried there before, or that he arose as one of the old prophets did, by touching the bones of some other dead person. Observe 4, the manner of our Lord's funeral. It was hasty, public, and decent. It was hasty by reason of the straitness of time, the Sabbath was approaching, and all businesses laid aside to prepare for that, teaching us how much it is our duty to dispatch our worldly business early on the eve of the Lord's day, that we may be better prepared to sanctify that day. Again, our Lord's funeral was public and open. All persons that would might be spectators, to cut off occasion from any to object that there was a deceit or fraud used in or about our Lord's burial. Yet he was also interred decently, his holy body being wrapped in fine linen and perfumed with spices, according to the Jewish custom. Observe five the reason why our Lord was thus buried, seeing he was to rise again in as short a time as other men lay by the walls. Doubtless it was to declare the certainty of his death and the reality of his resurrection, to fulfill the types and prophecies which went before of him, as Jonah being three days and three nights in the whale's belly he was also buried to complete his humiliation, this being the lowest step to which he could descend in his abased state. Finally, he went into the grave that he might conquer death in its own territories. Observe, lastly, of what use our Lord's burial is to us, his followers. It shows us the amazing depth of his humiliations, from what and to what his love brought him, even from the bosom of his father to the bosom of the grave. It may also comfort us against the fears of death. The grave could not long keep Christ. It shall not always keep us. It was a loathsome prison before. It is a perfumed bed now. He whose head is in heaven need not fear to put his feet into the grave. Awake and sing, thou that dwellest in the dust, for the enmity of the grave is slain by Christ.